6 o'clock on the dot. And welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, November 16th. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. In tonight's news, environmental advocates rally against a proposed golf course that would neighbor a state park in Sheboygan County. Madison Starbucks workers have officially joined a nationwide strike. And in the second half, an advocate is looking for ways to transform the narrative around incarceration. Two carpentry instructors discuss some of their regrettable DIY projects and optical toys get a closer look. This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Senator Tammy Baldwin has joined a bipartisan group of senators supporting a bill to reduce insulin costs and improve accessibility to the drug for people with diabetes. The Insulin Act of 2023 would limit out-of-pocket insulin costs to $35 per month require that patients benefit 100% from rebates or discounts, insulin manufacturers award to insurance plan benefit managers, and promote competition in the insulin market. The bill was introduced by Senators Raphael Warnock of Georgia and John Kennedy of Louisiana. A $2 billion tax cut... A $2 billion tax cut plan cleared the Wisconsin legislature this week on path to a likely veto, veto from Governor Tony Evers, the Associated Press reports. The measure is part of a package intended to reduce child care costs, a plan that Evers' spokesman described as, quote, completely unserious. Evers vetoed a similar tax cut last summer. The governor called a special session in September to pass a billion-dollar package to enhance child care services for Wisconsin families. The Republican-controlled legislature called the session and adjourned in less than a minute. Some gig workers for online apps like Uber and Lyft would be classified as independent contractors in Wisconsin rather than employees under a bill that received a hearing Wednesday in the state legislature, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. The measure would mean that such workers would be exempt from employee benefits, such as workers' compensation and unemployment insurance. In return, they could set their own working hours, choose where to work, and drive for multiple companies. Under the plan, some workers would qualify for portable benefit account where they could use to finance health insurance or retirement. Last year, the Biden administration proposed reclassifying gig workers as employees so they can enjoy the benefits of workers on payroll. That would roll back a Trump administration rule that classified them as contractors. A bipartisan group of former congressmen is cautioning against a 2024 third-party presidential bid from the centrist organization No Labels. They warned that the third-party votes could siphon away votes from Democrats, making it easier for Donald Trump to win swing states like Wisconsin. Former Democratic House Majority Leader Richard Gephardt of Missouri told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, quote, If these were normal times, we would have no trouble with third parties, but these are not normal times. We cannot allow the individual who really instigated that possible overthrow to get back in the White House. No labels formed in 2010 to promote centrism and bipartisanship. More recently, they've shifted to supporting a unity ticket to break the cycle of angry identity politics. 
the chief strategist for No Labels, Ryan Clancy, said that polling suggests that a majority of voters want an alternative to Joe Biden and Trump. Some Wisconsinites woke up Wednesday morning to shaking and rattling. At 4.41 a.m. yesterday, a 3.6 magnitude earthquake hit northern Illinois, but southern Wisconsinites were close enough to be shook as well. The Wisconsin State Journal is reporting that Illinois and three other states were able to feel the quake. The U.S. Geological Survey says the tremor occurred about three miles below the surface of the Earth, and they've so far received no reports of damage. Research geologist with the USGS, Jessica Job, said that said warned that small to moderate earthquakes can occur anywhere and anytime in the eastern U.S. A package left on the State Street Mall that bought out the Dane County Bomb Squad this week turned out to be harmless, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. A campus alert advised UW's Madison staff and students to avoid the area in the 700 block of State Street where the package was discovered around 10.20 a.m. Tuesday. Police taped off the area before the bomb squad examined the package and determined it was not dangerous. Police did not identify the contents of the package, but in his blog Wednesday, Police Chief Sean Barnes said the original said the original report that something had detonated turned out to be a cologne bottle that burst when a maintenance truck backed over it. <laughs> Two stainless steel sculptures gracing the median in the 200 block of South Pinckney Street were unveiled Wednesday as the newest public art in downtown Madison. Minnesota-based artist Sunghee Min told Channel 3000 that Greeting Arc 1 and Greeting Arc 2 were inspired by reflections of sunlight on the water. And now on to today's top stories. A Wisconsin company worth billions of dollars is looking to transform 247 acres of wooded Sheboygan County land into a golf course. But conservation activists are fighting to stop the project. WRT News producer Faye Parks attended their rally at the Capitol this afternoon. Kohler Andre State Park is situated just south of Sheboygan, along the shores of Lake Michigan. It's named for the Wisconsin businessman who donated 280 acres to the state in 1966. Kohler Company, best known for its bathroom features, made an estimated $8 billion in sales last year. They're also known for their championship golf courses, two of them located just a few miles north of Kohler Andre State Park. Now, the company is looking to build another golf course and related facilities right on the park's north border, directly on the shores of Lake Michigan. Friends of Black River, a conservation organization based in Jackson County, is fighting against this development. They hosted a rally this afternoon at the state capitol with representatives from several other environmental groups in attendance. According to Mary Fadash, the president of Friends, Kohler has been on their radar for a number of years. A long time ago, neighbors gathered to express our concerns that a <coughs> thorough environmental impact study take place and all permits in Wisconsin law be adhered to. We had this funny feeling that perhaps when you're dealing with a very large entity, that things might slip through. The new golf course's construction became a possibility in 2018 when the Walker administration agreed to swap just over six acres of state land 
for nine and a half acres of Kohler-owned property. Kohler Company wants to use that land to build a four-lane road through the park to access the golf course to the north. It also wants to build a 22,000-square-foot building for maintenance, pesticides, and fuel. Fadash says that the 2018 land swap was unfair, and Governor Tony Evers has the power to reverse it. We're not expecting him to be a scientist or an attorney or even a conservationist. We're expecting him to listen to what is now up to over 30,000 people who are saying, please send this land exchange agreement, which was based on illegal and wrong DNR procedures, please send it back to the Natural Resources Board to be dealt with, to be legally reviewed, and to be nullified. Friends of the Black River has been locked in a legal battle with Kohler Company for several years and has already dealt with two losses. Last year, the state Supreme Court ruled that the land swap could proceed, and Friends did not have the legal standing to stop it. It was a very convoluted decision. It ruled that we did not have the right to go into a court of law to argue the merits of what we call the land swap case. So this has affected environmental groups who are trying to, legal, to use the legal system to save the environment, and it's affected us as individuals. Conservationists not only take issue with the land swap, but also the effect that a golf course could have on the surrounding environment. Rebecca Gilman is the secretary and co-chair of the Conservation Committee for the Wisconsin Society of Ornithology. Um, this land is not only important to the citizens of Wisconsin and to the people who live near it, it's an incredibly important, a technically important bird area. Thousands of migratory birds use this land as a stopover site every year in the spring and the fall, and hundreds of species of birds use the woods of that area that would be cut down for a golf course for nesting and for essential habitat. She also referenced a 2019 study from the Smithsonian, Cornell University, and Georgetown University that found North America has lost 30% of its birds since 1970. Advocates like Rose Both of the Sierra Club's Wisconsin chapter argue that Kohler's environmental statements are deliberately obtuse. Last Sunday in the Wisconsin State Journal, a Kohler spokesman named Michael Ballot said that putting a golf course on this land would be an answer to the invasive species that are now on the land. Oh. The garlic mustard. So apparently getting a bunch of rich men up there to hit a little ball with sticks is now the cure for garlic mustard and buckthorn. That's what they're trying to sell us. They've also said repeatedly that their golf course plan is minimalist. Clear-cutting 50,000 trees is not minimalist. Several of today's speakers also pointed out that the environment isn't their only concern. Five years ago, archaeologists at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee unearthed 2,500-year-old human remains at the very site where Kohler is looking to build the new golf course. They also found a number of artifacts, most of which belong to Woodland-era Native Americans, reports Wisconsin Watch. State Senator Chris Larson, a Democrat from Milwaukee, also attended today's rally. He says these burial grounds are at risk. And they are at risk of erosion if Kohler Corporation gets their way and builds yet another massive golf course. Friends of the Black River did achieve a small victory in 2021 when an administrative law judge ruled that the state's DNR improperly granted Kohler's wetlands permit. 
The company donated more than $80,000 to the Walker campaign before he allegedly pressured the DNR to sign off on the permit, according to the Wisconsin Law Journal. The state Supreme Court ruling on the land swap was contingent on Kohler regaining their wetlands permit. The case is currently in the State Court of Appeals, where it's been sitting for two years. For now, the golf course's construction is at a standstill. But Senator Larson wants Governor Evers to step in and put Kohler's plans to rest for good. But now that Governor Evers has a majority of his appointees on the Natural Resources Board, it's time to undo the mistakes of the past and protect Kohler Andre State Park from harmful, unnecessary development that will forever change our state's landscape and cha diminish its natural beauty. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Trees for the parks, for the birds, for the trees, for the parks, for the It's now 6.18 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Starbucks workers from the State Street and Capitol Square locations went on strike today. They join a national strike planned to coincide with one of Starbucks' biggest promotional days of the year in order to call attention to staffing and scheduling issues. Reporter Sarah Gabler spoke with union organizers, workers, and community members about the strike. No contract! No coffee! No contract! No coffee! No coffee! No coffee! Dozens of unionized Starbucks workers and community members filled the sidewalk outside of the State Street store today. Both the State Street and Capitol Square locations closed as workers took to the picket line. Workers filed an unfair labor practice strike to demand a fair contract that includes improved staffing practices. The organizers of today's nationwide strike are calling it the Red Cup Rebellion because the strike falls on Red Cup Day, a day when customers can receive a free reusable cup when they purchase a holiday drink. The Red Cup Rebellion began last year when over 100 unionized locations went on strike. They demanded better wages, as organizer Chanel Biami told WORT News last year. Evan McKenzie, a shift supervisor and union organizer, says that this year, union members are focusing on better staffing and contracts. What we're striking specifically about are promotional days, but we're talking about staffing, especially in Madison, as just every single day. But our promotional days, like Thursdays or BOGO days, normally in the past we've had increased staffing because we see up to like 100% increases in the amount of drinks we make and the amount of customers we serve. But this year we've seen almost zero changes in staffing in the afternoons even though it puts an additional strain on our afternoon workers. So we're telling Starbucks that if they don't bargain over these things and over staffing in general and a contract, then we're going to shut it down. Today's strike comes two months after the State Street workers walked out over staffing issues. As Maeve Perkins, a barista who has worked at Starbucks for over two and a half years, says, Our strike in September, we just walked out of the store because we had severe understaffing. We had hour-long wait time, so we just we sent a strike notice to our manager and we walked out. Last month, State Street employees requested containers for safe needle disposal in their stores. 
Their request was denied, and instead the company installed bathroom timers and told employees that they were now responsible for monitoring customers' use of their bathrooms. Evan McKenzie says he's proud to live and work in Madison, where his union receives community support. They're really lucky to be living in Madison. Madison is a union town, and you can see it. The mayor came by earlier today, a school board member, Nikki Vandermulen, doing a speech later. We have a bunch of the Madison community out here with different labor organizations and community groups because this town understands that we are the community. You know, the workers who are at these stores provide their coffees every day, and it's just, it's so heartwarming. But it's hard for Starbucks workers to feel the love on a day-to-day -day basis when they're understaffed and stressed out, says barista Senua O'Connor. Because you want to be friendly and nice and outgoing and, and make a community, and it sucks when all you can do is go as fast as possible on bar. You know, there'll be times where I'm right next to someone on the bar and we don't say a single word to each other because we're just working. That makes me feel like I'm on, you know, old-fashioned, uh, you know, factory line. And it's not the job that I signed up for. I'm here to be a barista. I'm here to create a community and, and, and meet people. And I can't do that when we're understaffed like this. O'Connor links the routine understaffing on promotional days to union busting tactics. It's very intentional. We can't be, uh, can't be too clear about that. Uh, the typical procedure for Starbucks is to give us more staff on promotional days, and they simply decided not to do that this year. So I want to make it clear that it is intentional and that they are trying to make us hurt a little bit. Strikers also voiced concern that Starbucks would bring in workers to break the picket line. And a chalk sign outside the Capitol Square Starbucks reads, quote, closed for union busting. To this, Evan McKenzie says. Up until 24 hours ago, we thought we were going to get scabbed. Um, what that means is having a bunch of workers who are not from our store come in and break the strike, cross the picket line in order to open the store even while we're striking. Due to a number of factors, but most specifically the amount of organization we've done before this strike, where we talked to the community, we got confirmations from different uh, political figures that they were going to be here, they felt it would be unwise to scab a store right in front of the state capitol. Starbucks continues to implement other union-busting tactics at the State Street and Capitol Square locations, including disabling the credit card tipping system. That means at these two locations, customers can't leave credit card tips for the baristas. But credit card tips are offered to other non-unionized locations as benefits. Today's Red Cup Rebellion comes as Starbucks workers have become an epicenter for labor organizing. Since 2021, more than 360 Starbucks locations across 41 states have formed unions, and that's out of the more than 16,000 stores nationwide. There are only two unionized stores in Madison, the Capitol Square location whose workers formed a union in June of 2022, and the State Street location, which unionized in June of this year. Pearl, a barista at the East Washington Starbucks, a location that doesn't have a union, says... Um, my location is pretty new. When we first got, when we first opened, we trained at the two unionized locations, all of the new baristas, 
and the opening of the store was a big mess. <laughs> and uh, I know there's some people at my store that think that because we're a little bit slower, we don't need a union, but I say that that's why we do need to unionize because nip it in the bud before it starts, you know? I spoke with other baristas who believe today's strike will send a message to the company and to their customers. My name is Elena. I'm a barista at State Street Starbucks, and this is my first union event as a barista at State Street. Um, it's really exhilarating being out here. Asking for a fair contract feels empowering, and it feels like we can make some real change. So I'm happy to be out here. I'd rather be out here than in class. So, <laughs> What is it like being a student worker? What do you think your fellow students need to know about what you're doing out here today? I think being a student worker gives you a really unique perspective. A lot of our customer base, especially on State Street, are students and they just see Starbucks as somewhere that they get coffee and they don't really see the people behind the bar who are working and who are their fellow students. Um, and so I think being out here and raising awareness of what we're going through at work, understaffing, lowing, lower wages, um, can give the students that we serve a better perspective on what we're going through. The person serving you is a person and we have our own needs and rights and we want to help you as much as we can, but we can't do that without corporate helping us first. And at the end of the day, Maeve Perkins believes that today's strike is going to make a national impact. I have a feeling that this national strike is going to create change. You know, Starbucks is going to get to the point where they can't keep holding off our contract because we're not going to stop fighting and we're not going to stop striking and we're not going to stop protesting and they're going to realize that at some point. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Sarah Gabler. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. What if there was a way to transform the lives of those in correctional institutions? Now, Moses is an organization looking to rewrite the narrative around incarceration and post-incarceration life. On tonight's Out of the Box, we'll hear guest host Kingston Robertson's conversation with James Morgan of Moses. Hello, everyone. This is Out of the Box Podcast, and I'm your host, Kingston Robertson, and I'm here with James Morgan. Could you give us a little insight on what MOSES stands for and what you guys doing for the community? Yeah, well, MOSES stands for Madison Organized and Strength, Equity, and Solidarity. What we are is an organization that focuses on creating and assisting and changing legislation relative to incarceration, post-incarceration, housing, education, a number of our members who are really active in all of those areas. Where did this come from? Where did Moses start from? Well, Moses started in 2010. A number of us, there was uh, Reverend Joe L. Winger out of mm -hmm. Milwaukee, myself, Jerome Dillard, and David Liners at the behest of a woman by the name of Carol Rubin, who did the necessary research and uh, building of the organization with its member congregations. We had to have 10 member congregations before we could become a part of WISDOM, which is our statewide affiliate under the umbrella of our national organization, which is Gamaliel. And those are organizations that train individuals in community activism and community organization. Could you tell us a few things that you guys are doing right now? 
there's a lot of behind the scenes work. Yeah. <laughs> what I think people will be familiar with at this particular point is approximately two to three weeks ago, the New York Times published an article about the horrific conditions in Walpon Correctional Institution and Green Bay Correctional Institution here in the state of Wisconsin, where individuals have been on what the department calls a modified movement, but in actuality, they are lockdowns where individuals are in their cells for 22 to 23 hours a day, lack of access to showers, communications with their families and things of that nature. So we're protesting those conditions and seeing what we can do to get the Department of Corrections as well as the governor to address those issues that are impacting people in negative ways. 23 and 1, that's a long time to be locked up in, in a cell and can't come out and then no showers and things of that nature. Actively right now, where are you at in creating that change? Again, we keep advocating for the change that's needed and necessary. And I was sharing with someone this morning, you know, the Democrats have come out with a bill to address some of those issues, to address some of those issues long term, requiring the Department of Corrections to fulfill those needs to ensure that people have the opportunity to exercise, that people have the opportunity to shower, to do those things that are needed and necessary so they can maintain their human dignity while they're in that space. You know, how we determine the treatment of individuals in those spaces will determine how they come home. We want right. them to come home mentally, emotionally, and, and physically well and capable of becoming the fathers and the mothers that they are intended to be. We want them to be able to engage, re-engage in their families and their communities in healthy ways. You know, we all know those of us who have experienced incarceration because I've experienced incarceration. I was incarcerated for over 24 and a half years. Yeah, you want to come home and be able to not just be welcomed. You want to come home and be accepted into a whole community, into a whole family in a way that's beneficial for everyone, children, your mother, your wife, your husband, your nieces, your nephews. And, you know, it is incumbent upon us to address these things. Some of us haven't been in those situations. Some of us not, you know, to shine the light. Okay. On these issues is very important. Yes, it is. We need to be the voice. You know, for people who have been made fall into and purposes silent, we want this issue. We want them to be visible and particularly in this political arena where those choices and decisions are made by people who really have no understanding or concept about what those environments do to human beings. Because I also was incarcerated for seven years before, so I kind of got a great understanding of where you're coming from, what you're talking about. But to do 24 years and come out and be as strong as you are and be a part of Moses, how do you come home? and get to this point? I got to a point where I understood that there was a greater than in my life and started figuring out, you know, what I needed to do, number one, to survive that experience and not lose my mind. I was very active in that environment. I found things that I could spend my time and attention on that gave me a sense of my humanity, my dignity, my artwork, my reading, my education, you know, went to school, acquired an a, a associate of arts degree while I was incarcerated, began to figure out the value of communication, the value of language, you know, never really knowing if I would ever step foot outside that environment. But being there, I had to figure out how I could live my best life while I was there. I'm not going to say coming out made it, it a piece of cake because there were still issues that right. I had to figure right. out for myself in consultation with some others who had had similar experiences I, I had and who were successful after transitioning out of incarceration. When you got home after doing so much time, 
what was your first steps of growth and moving forward in the community? Well, the first thing was how to conquer fear, how to conquer fear. That was my thinking. But then, you know, talking again with some of the individuals that I had been keeping track of, other men who had gotten out and been successful in terms of staying out of prison is engaging them in conversations that allowed me to focus on what was happening to me. In those situations where I felt uncomfortable, where I felt fearful, where I felt like, you know, this is, you know, I've got to go back to all I know. That could come real fast. Oh, that could come real fast <laughs> when, when them pockets empty. Especially when everybody, know, oh, he home. Right. Right, right. And, and that's all they know you for is it, like whatever, whatever what, it was whatever in the past. you left them with. Yeah. Okay. And that's not just the guys in the street. That's your family too. You got children. All they know about you is what you left them with. And if there's been a transformation or a transition into you becoming someone other than the thing that you left them with, notice the language. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Okay. It can be challenging and it can be painful. That was Kingston Robertson sitting down with James Morgan. James is working with Moses to change the criminal justice system and help folks adjust to life post-incarceration. This week on The House Always Wins, John and Allie, two carpentry instructors who have never heard the expression, what can go wrong, share their regrettable DIY projects. Hello everybody, I'm John. And I'm Allie, and welcome to The House Always Wins, where you can learn cool stuff about your house. So, Allie, you know, we talk about a lot of various projects that people can or maybe can't do at their homes. We've even had a whole discussion about that. Uh, but, you know, we never talk about what we've done. Have you ever had to tackle a home project that you wished you hadn't? Oh, yes, I have. <laughs> I think it's common for anyone, and, and mm-hmm. I think I include us, we have enough knowledge to be pretty dangerous. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so we thought it would be fun this time around to just regale you, dear listener, with a couple of those stories. And, and maybe you'll think twice about jumping into one of those projects or if you're like me you'll find a way to convince yourself that it's gonna be different when you do it oh naturally and it'll be fine it'll It'll all be be fine fine. what could possibly go wrong (laughs) so why don't you why don't you lead us off john and tell us about a regrettable project well you know that's fascinating because one of our previous talks was talking about roofing we Mm -hmm. talked about asphalt roofing and well in a previous home i had asphalt roofing and i had hail damage and gosh you know i'm like i got the insurance settlement, I was like, hey, I could save a ton of money. I could do this myself. I mean, I know how to do this, right? And, right. We and teach how to do yeah, it. Yeah, we teach how to do it. I'm like, I could totally do this. It's a, you know, it's a low pitch roof. And oh, and by the way, I got that old chimney sticking out. And while I'm there, I'll, I'll tear out that chimney too. And this will be great. And I gave myself about a week. <laughs> Time, to do that timeline always feels like oh, an issue. Oh, it does. And so then I started like, oh, you know, what could be so hard about tearing down a chimney? Oh, yeah, it came apart real easily. That wasn't the problem. It's like getting it off the roof and down into a dumpster. And then once it's down below the roof, getting it out of the attic and then opening up the wall and getting it all the way down into the basement. Uh, I ended up hiring a helper and he shows up and he he was great. He worked hard and wow, you know, and then once we finally got the chimney done, I still hadn't, I still had my roof to do. So, you know, I called in my friends and they were great. They showed up, but days later, finally got it done. And I look back on it and it's like, was it really worth it to save a couple thousand dollars? Hell no. 
<laughs> Hell to the no. How how about you? I have several regrettable projects, but they they seem to mostly have a theme of like they're extremely physically demanding, but they also require a certain amount of skill. Right. And I might have some of the skills, but boy, I don't have the physical strength to do these jobs. What? So, We're, like we said last time, aren't we both just like 27-year-old sexy people? Yeah, right. Uh, okay. Yeah. So one year I decided I was going to take advantage of, I have a 10-day spring break and, nice. and the family was going to be out of town. So I had Check. a place to myself and I'm like, I'm replacing these worn out wood floors. Nice. So during that time span, I had to move all the furniture out. I had to rip out the old wood floor. Then I installed the new wood floor. And I feel like all of that was was well within my my skill set. Sure. Absolutely. Oh, but absolutely. It was, but it's hard work. And I was doing a reclaimed wood floor. So that's, that's a bit harder work oh than actually God, yeah. using brand new wood flooring. So that was all great. And I'm about seven days in and it's like, oh, and now it's time to sand the wood floors Ooh. and finish them. And that's where things really started to go belly up for me because I'm already exhausted from the previous seven days. Right. And now I'm going to hump this, you know, 100, 125 pound machine oh into my, my house and and sand it. And, and the thing about sanding wood floors is like, one, there's this physical, like having to move around this big machine and you better do it right because you're going to oh, gouge yes. your floor if you do it badly. So it's sort of like finesse plus brute strength, which I only bring, well, I don't bring neither of those actually, if I'm going to be honest right here. Um, oh, you, you, that, your finesse is that, excellent. To that task. So, you know, I'm sure I saved a little bit of money, but I did learn later on, I talked to a, a floor finishing guy and he's like, you know, that machine you rent, we well, just have a much different machine and it's much better and it doesn't do the things that your experience. <laughs> of course. You. The, so, that's always the way that goes, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's still the floor that's in my house. Obviously it's still holds up the furniture and, and everybody in the house. But boy, every time I see those gouges and chatter marks, I just want to cry a little oh, bit. Oh God. Yeah, I know. It, it, even just listening to you talk about that, like makes my anxiety level and stress level just go up a little bit because I'm I'm with you all the way. I know how that goes. You know, I, one other small project too that I did that it, it wasn't as big a one. It was like, oh, we tore out this old fireplace in, our, in the house we live in now. And it's like, let's put in a wood stove. Okay, great. You know, I, the wood stove install itself actually wasn't hard had the chimney chase up on the roof but i decided to pour a concrete pad you know have a shape to it a nice concrete pad so we picked and we're like let's color it we'll do concrete coloring okay cool we picked out this color that had kind of a, a reddish purpley you know what's that color uh, like sienna Maybe no no red sienna. red red like dark dark mm -hmm. red you know okay cool it's gonna look really awesome so poured the concrete got some help again it mixed up the concrete got it all poured that actually went fine that went about as i expected then i added the color to it and then kind of worked it in with the trowel and then waited and finished it and then um the next day i wake up and come out and look at it and i'm standing here looking at it with my wife and we're both looking at it and she goes this color you know what it reminds me of i'm like no i'm not sure but we're both kind of like scratching our head what's going on she's like it looks like a pink pearl eraser color so better than pepto-bismol well I, slightly <laughs> slightly but it ended up being this pinkish color it looks like a pink eraser so oh, oops man. and there it is it's poured it's concrete yeah wow <laughs> Tough one, tough one to uh, go and fix, you know, or to, uh, yeah, I suppose there's some ways you could stain it. But ah, you could stain it, I suppose, yeah. or paint it, maybe tile yeah. it. But oh, paint it. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds like worthwhile. Um, okay, know. that was a bad idea. Yeah. I, I retract that statement. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's do something we'll never have to touch again and then paint it. And then paint to it, To make yeah. sure you have to, to right, fix yeah. it. Yeah. Have you ever done any, like, 
concrete pours. Oh you my know, God. like Yeah, I don't, you know, I just get in my head. It's like, oh, I don't need a truck. Who needs yeah. a truck? I can just mix bags. Yeah, it'll be and, easy. So I built, I built these stairs. I had them formed up. I mean, they're kind of, they're pretty cool looking and all that. And I didn't really think about the fact that it was going to be 180 pound bags of concrete that I hand mixed and poured that day. 100 I mean, bags in one day. In one day. I was a broken individual. Oh and then I had, I remember I had a softball game that night and, oh and I just sort of like dragged myself there and people were like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I can't even talk about this. It's, oh man. Yeah. And, and so then of course the problem with these regrettable projects when you, when they're in your own home is that you have to be reminded of it all the time. It's like you could, this PTSD for yes, every time, every time walk, you look at it, I'm just like, oh, this. <laughs> oh God, don't look at that. You know, and every time, yeah, we know too much. That's we know the problem. too much. We, we know, know way too much. Too much. We yeah. Know too much. One of my first tile projects was, was a shower enclosure. It's like, you know, what when you're learning to do tile start with something that start doesn't have to be simple. waterproof exactly <laughs> yeah there's another one it's like okay yeah we know how to do tile but showers are very very different yeah exactly that's that's like one you want to nail exactly all right well thanks john for sharing a little of that i hope the listeners enjoy hearing that we really biff it sometimes oh absolutely and, and it just it should be a reminder to all of them it's like yeah just because you can and just because you saw it on youtube just because you saw it on youtube doesn't mean you should well that's all we have time for today so if you have any questions about home improvement construction carpentry projects you should never try yourself <laughs> then drop us an email at the house always wins at wortfm.org It's 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On this week's edition of Radio Chipstone, feature contributor Gianna Fields interviews Meredith Bach. Bach is an assistant professor in the Department of Childhood Studies at Rutgers University Camden. She says that 19th century toys were serious business, pointing to her book titled Playful Visions, Optical Toys, and the Emergence of Children's Media Culture. Optical toys is a term that refers to a whole series of devices that were developed during the 19th century that allowed users to experiment with and play with their vision. And so I commonly call them scopes and tropes because a lot of their inventors gave them very elaborate Greek names like the thaumatrope and the phenakistoscope and the zoetrope. And these were all essentially toys that uh, created optical illusions for people to enjoy. One of the things that cracked me up in the book, because I don't know, I told you earlier before we were recording that there were times when I actually screamed and laughed out loud and yelled at the book, was the <laughs> advertisement, it's not nearly as bad as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think their inventors sort of had lofty ambitions for explaining the kinds of visual tricks and the visual illusions that these toys created. And most of them really came out of scientific experimentation. So in the 19th century, people started thinking about vision and how our eyes worked in different ways. And one of the things that came up was the fact that our vision can deceive us, right, or trick us in different ways. And so people kind of observed these phenomena in everyday life. 
life. If you see like a wagon wheel going around, its spokes blur together. If you have a, a like a lighted stick at the end of a string and you swing it around, it looks like a solid ring of light. And so practitioners in the sciences were interested in taking some of these visual experiences where we are seeing something differently than what we know we're seeing and packaging them as educational toys, basically. So what did these toys look like? Well, the first of these optical toys was called the Thaumatrope, developed in the mid-1820s. And it was definitely the simplest of them, and so you would find that it was very commonly recreated. The Thaumatrope is basically a card where you have two sides printed on it, and on one side you have half of an image, say a bird, and then on the other side you have the other half, like a cage. And then if you tie strings to that card and spin it around really quickly, it looks like the bird is in the cage because of a perceptual phenomenon, which they called persistence of vision. Basically, our eyes sort of trick us into seeing the bird in the cage if the thaumatrope is spinning around fast enough. So that one, you know, you can make in a minute's time. And so you find that it was much more commonly reproduced, I think, and uh, sort of incorporated into kids play as a homemade thing. Some of them were much more elaborate. By the 1870s, there was a toy called the praxinoscope, which was sort of a spinning toy, which had a strip of figures printed on it, so a strip of images in different positions. And as the praxinoscope spun, you looked into a multifaceted mirror and it looked like those images were moving. And so making a praxinoscope would have required a lot of measurement. It would have required access to mirrors and stuff. So it would have been more expensive to buy and definitely more complicated to make. So you don't see as many of those in kind of kids' daily lives. So, Meredith, let's talk about these toys when it comes, when they start coming into contact with children and the concept of productive playtime. What does that mean? Well, during the 19th century, you saw a lot of changes in attitudes around childhood. Childhood really started to become a time that was perceived as a time for innocence, for development. You saw the growth of laws that supported compulsory education. And very quickly, you saw kind of a rapidly expanding idea that children belonged in schools, not just wealthy children being tutored at home, but that more and more children should attend school and should learn that way. And you had the kind of swelling middle class growing at this time. So more and more kids kind of falling into this category of not needing to be economic producers, but instead spending their work time learning. And we often hear about play as children's work. And this was an idea that was really beginning to take hold for a much larger group of children during the 19th century. And so the idea of productive play at home, I think really came about through this notion that children were attending school much of the time, but they of course had school holidays and school breaks. And there came to be this sort of assumption that children needed to be filling their precious time productively. So kids had more leisure time than ever as aspects of daily life got easier as they weren't required to be doing as much manual labor or labor around the house, things like that. And so the question became, what, what do kids do with all this time? How can they spend this time valuably in ways that will edify themselves and edify others that will help them learn and grow in kind of informal ways? And so optical toys were a big component of this because they were seen as sort of appropriate and good and educational playthings. 
But we're not talking about all children here. We're talking about middle-class children, likely talking about white children. So as we look at this toy and it's and it's starting to present itself, we know that there are children who had means, who had access to it, but was there any sort of desire to make sure that all children, no matter what social status, had access to these, this kind of learning? It's a great question. And I think one of the things that's striking about optical toys is that they were available at a lot of different price points. And so you could purchase them from a bookshop or a toy shop or even an optician's as pre-made toys. And many of them were very kind of lavishly designed. You know, they were made out of metal and wood and they probably were fairly expensive, but they were also things that kids could make on their own. And they were printed, you know, in magazines and in newspapers. Down the line, you would find like hat boxes and hat band packaging that would have zoetropes printed on them. And so what was kind of fascinating is that I realized that a wide spectrum of children probably had access to these playthings. You know, the middle class encompassed a range of socioeconomic positions, I think. But what all of these toys endeavored to do, I think, was to sort of cultivate a sense of seeing and being seen as a discerning subject. In other words, they invited people, their young users especially, to kind of imagine themselves as media literate and media savvy. And so I think a wide variety of kids would have had access to these toys, but the idea was to sort of invite them to inhabit these positions as sort of middling subjects who had kind of economic prosperity in their future. So we talked a bit, Meredith, about productive playtime. Compare that concept to rational recreation. Are they one and the same or are there differences between productive playtime and then rational recreation? Productive playtime and rational recreation were both fairly sort of all-encompassing terms to describe ways for children to use their leisure time in a way that would not be seen as frivolous or wasteful. So I think they're two really related terms. And rational recreation is, is a term that extends back, I think, earlier than the 19th century to refer to past times that more wealthy kids would be able to experience. They would read books that were available to them that would invite them to sort of engage in magic tricks and, and exercises like that to, to sharpen their senses and to make sure they were well-read and well-rounded. And I think this idea of productive playtime is a slight variation of that in the 19th century in that children's growing up years were really starting to be regarded as highly precious, that the, this was really special time for kids to get a head start, right, and pull ahead of their peers through the way that they spent their leisure time. Like, were they wasting their leisure time and sort of frittering it away? Or were they really trying to build their skills and build their sensibilities to prepare them for adult life? As a child, I didn't know that my play was directed. I had no idea. <laughs> I thought I was just playing. Toys always have a lot of baggage attached to them. They always reflect the values of their culture and their time period. And we see this most obviously with things like highly gendered toys, girls' toys or boys' toys, or with toys that expressly engage, say, violence, you know, toy guns and things like that, or that perpetuate racial stereotypes. It's very easy to kind of recognize the values laden on those kinds of toys. But optical toys, really at the level 
level of perception invited kids to see the world in a particular way and invited them to see themselves in the world in a particular way that had a lot to do with their social status and with assumptions about the kind of work that they would want to do with the kinds of lives that they would end up leading and this sort of assumption that they should be spending their time in edifying and educational pursuits. And so in a lot of ways, although these were kids' first encounters with the moving images, they were really coded as productive play. And today, when we think of screen time, it's typically given this negative connotation. But the earliest moving images were all about teaching kids how their vision worked and why it was important to know how it worked. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that was Dr. Meredith Bach telling WORT's Jennifer Fields about her study of 19th century toys. She explores those toys in her book, Playful Visions, Optical Toys, and the Emergence of Children's Media Culture. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Russ Mackey and Peter Voller were your headline writers. Your reporter tonight was Sarah Gabler. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr and Kingston Roberts. Robertson, John Stephanie and Ali Barini, and Jennifer Fields. Nicole Alley engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. You don't have to miss a single episode of the local news when you subscribe to it as a podcast. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Stay tuned and good night.